Drilling fluids touch just about everything in the drilling process. We're here to deconstruct the drilling process and drilling fluid concepts to provide a deeper understanding of our industry. In each episode, we'll share information, talk to interesting people, and maybe share a few stories along the way. Welcome to The Flow Line, a production of AES Drilling Fluids, brought to you by Matt Offenbacher and Justin Gautier. Welcome to another episode of The Flow Line. We're here in the virtual world with Mr. Charles Welker and Matt Offenbacher, the one and only. So, uh, gentlemen, how are we doing today uh, across the internet world here? Can't complain. I'm fantastic. Thanks. Good, good. Well, well, Matt and I are in, are in Houston here, but Charles, what about yourself? Why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself, what your role is here at AES, and um, you know, and then we can get talking about uh, the episode and what we're going to talk about today. Awesome. Well, uh, my name is Charles Welker. I live out in Seals Grove, Pennsylvania, so they're on the other side of the country from you guys. Yeah. Is it <laughs> nice there today? What's the weather like up there right now? Oh, it's quite rainy. It's beautiful yesterday, but very rainy today. Yeah. So where is that relation to Pittsburgh? I'm about three and a half, four hours away from Pittsburgh, due, uh, due east, closer okay. to Philly. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. That's Thanks. actually where I went to college. I went to school in Philadelphia, have a degree in architecture. Ah, okay. Architecture, mud engineer slash data scientist. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> oh, right man. On. My, my background is a very, uh, very weird one. Start off, like I said, with architecture, but graduated right about the same time the uh, Great Recession hit. So found myself quickly looking to get myself some money and uh, started going door-to-door doing sales for two years. Good for you. And it was interesting because when you're doing door-to-door sales, you have to learn very quickly how to read people, find out what they want, other than for you to get off the front lawn. Right. And, and somehow convince them to give you money very quickly on the spot. So you have to learn what people want, what drives them. Yes. Um, and I think that helps me a lot with what I'm doing now because a lot of this there's a lot of different factors of what we're doing. And one of them is presentation, trying to make something that people can relate to quickly mm-hmm. so they can get in, get out, get their data. And right. uh, I think that sales aspect of it really does help. So what I always, so my brother-in-law did door-to-door sales and he's got some pretty funny stories. Do you have anything that stands out to you? Like that was like completely bizarre or like the, the <laughs> highlight of that experience. Can you share any of that? I think you see you see a little bit of everything, and you see people coming at you with baseball bat because they don't want you there. Yeah, I mean, and, and it's funny because when you're out there walking around, you're in the same neighborhood for the entire day, seeing two, three hundred houses. You make two, three laps through there trying to catch people throughout the day. Yeah, uh, they come in and out from work. So they, then eventually, what happens is neighbors start calling one another. You see that guy walking around with a suit on. And the first question is, are you out there of like religious organization? Are you a Jehovah's Witness or are you somebody? Uh, trying to convince them to join your religion. So you'll have people who, as soon as you answer a door, they tell you what religion they are right away. Wow. Um, sometimes you have them trying to convert you and that's not even why you're there. <laughs> right. Um, I've had, I mean, yeah, you have people who come to the door less dressed than they should be. <laughs> Man. Been that was dogs. You see it all. Yeah. And when I was in the Boy Scouts and we would do door to door sales, which was actually like very character building to get in front of somebody, you know, we, we were selling mulch, right? And uh, that was like our big fundraiser for the year. But, it, you know, you're trying to do it when people are home, which is either weekends or after work. And it's starting to get a little dark. And, you know, this is Texas. So people start showing up with guns drawn and you're like, 
I'm like a 13 year old kid. I just wanted you to buy some shredded bark mulch, um, but I'll be leaving now. Right. Um, Did you, you wore the uniform too, right? So it's not like oh, you were yeah. just, some... I mean, <laughs> yeah. you got to wear the uniform that draws a lot of empathy, you know? So <laughs> oh, for um, sure. That's funny, man. Yeah, I uh, I can't say I, I did the door to door sales thing, but uh, I give it up to anyone who has because that takes some that takes some kahunas. So, uh, but anyway, so you, so you do the door to door sales, and then obviously there's a transition into the oil field. <laughs> Tell us about that. Yeah. So eventually, uh, my wife and I started the idea of having kids, and that changes everything because you can't go door to door with kids. I mean, it doesn't really pay the bills the way you'd hope. Sure. Uh, so I started selling cell phones for a bit, trying to find my footing. And this was in Pittsburgh, bumped into a gentleman named Eric. I'll pull his last name off this, but uh, he worked for Halliburton. And we just got to talking. And next thing I know, I had an interview for a mud engineering position. And I was always a math guy. Architecture is a lot, is very math heavy. Um, and I liked it. I liked the money. I liked, liked the schedule, actually. The two weeks on, two weeks off schedule actually appealed to me. I know some guys that doesn't. To me, it did. Hmm. And uh, Got really good at it. I enjoyed it a lot. Um, came over to AES a few years after that. Started working with James Strickland. He was my account manager. Um, and eventually he pulled me out of the field to become his uh, supervisor. And one of the first things he asked me to do was compile a bunch of data for a KPI. And you guys notice, like, KPIs, they're not as fun as being in the field. There's not a lot of problem solving. What it really is, it's a lot of monotonous page flipping where's yep. this number where's that number and for my mind that's, that's the most boring horrendous thing you could possibly do flip through pages just finding numbers right hated it and it gave me an idea i said you know this is all excel based why don't i write a little script here that'll pull all this data into one like you're, you're talking about having five ten twenty different rig files you have to go through why don't we pull all this data into one file so I started learning VBA, taught myself VBA, Good for Visual you. Basic. Um, then honestly, I never used Excel before I came into the oil field, not once. I had no clue how to use it. Hmm. So taught myself how to use it, wrote the script, and started automating all the page flipping, all the hunting for numbers. So and not to cut you off, but was that something that you were always interested in? Or did you just like scratch your own itch or like through school and stuff like that? Was because it obviously to have somebody that's self-taught that takes the initiative to learn visual basics and like doing that, a lot of people would just, you know, kind of mumble under their breath, how boring it is and get done with what they're doing and then move on. But, but kind of what, what drove you to kind of be a creator in a sense to, to develop something that helped you become more efficient? I don't like wasting my time. I'm a very efficient person. and. I saw myself spending a lot less time learning Visual Basic, going through that process. Uh, I'd save a lot less time compiling data that way than yeah. spending the next five, 10 years flipping pages for six days a month pulling data. Right. No, so. that, that makes a lot of sense. So, um, well, so then, so after doing that, because um, then you shortly after that ended up coming to the office and, and doing what you're doing now, right? Yeah, it was about a year later. Um, that there happened actually Matt was part of that process uh, there was an idea that we'd start compiling this data into a different type of program 
which is meant for data analytics. Um, what I was doing was, it was, don't get me wrong, it was really cool doing it on Excel, but it had its limitations, quite a few limitations. Gotcha. Uh, one of those limitations was scale. I mean, it worked really well for five frigs. It worked really well for maybe up to 10 wells. But that was its limit. It wasn't customizable. Um, some of these products they have out right now, like Power BI, for instance, um, they can scale. Yeah. It changed a lot. Very cool. And <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was, it was eye opening. There's limitations to Power BI, but they vastly outweigh the limitations to Excel. Well, and, and that's, you know, kind of what we're on uh, the flow line today talking about. Um, we're actually doing a series with, you know, um, the, we, we've recently written some papers with AEDE. Uh, and Matt, I'll let you talk a little bit more about that. But that's really what we're, we're wanting to talk about today is the, the, the paper uh, data analytics and, and how we're forming um, and what we're doing to, to sort of help the, you know, get get over these limitations that historically us in the mud business have been faced with. So Matt, why don't you go ahead and, and describe uh, sort of you and the team and what we've been able to accomplish and in, in our position with AADE and the papers we've written. Sure. So, um, I, you know, this is part of our series on, on the papers that were scheduled for the AAD fluids conference, which was canceled due to COVID-19. Um, and basically uh, the idea was this, this paper is still going to be released on the AAD website. Uh, I expect by the time we release this episode, they'll be available. You can download them for free. Uh, Charles was actually going to present the paper we wrote called A Data Analytics Platform Dedicated to Drilling Fluids. I'm one of the co-authors, a guy named Mike Snell, and our IT manager, Mike Bada, um, who kind of collaborated on this. We really wanted to tell the story of data analytics that, I mean, we, th- we think what we've been able to do is, is extremely meaningful. Uh, with respect to the fact that we're able to find value in some of the nuances of how well we know but um, I think some of the bigger picture things you hear about big data and AI and some of that other stuff uh, tends to involve production management, facilities management, BHA optimization. Um, but there is a lot of efficiencies and little things and gains that can be found. Um, and as we, we, we kind of wanted to tell the story of how we sort of set up and launched. Um, you know, the irony is that every day that goes by, Charles can tell you there's new features, new capabilities. Um, you know, it's a, it's a living product, if you will. Um, you know, ours, uh, we call AES analytics. Um, and it's just been this fantastic tool for us. Um, but the, the idea was really just to tell the story of, of kind of the fundamentals of, of how we got started. Um, and so, I don't know. I, th- I think that sort of sort of sums up why we've got Charles here. Um, yeah. Maybe Charles, why don't you go ahead and have you ever written a, a technical paper before, co-author? No, not at all. This was a first. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Well, I mean, what, what was it like for you to kind of read through, see some of the so to be part of the process? Was there anything that struck you? Is it something you might consider doing again? Uh, did you learn anything particularly interesting? Yeah, I mean, whenever you write a paper like this here, and it was a collaborative effort, like you said, um, first of all, you're struck by just how much data you're pulling from different sources. And sometimes it opens your eyes up to different ways of thinking that you didn't really anticipate thinking about. And for me, I mean, that was, that was good because it pushed me in some different directions in my thought process of where we could go, not just with this paper, but overall with some of our, some of our goals as a company. 
that was a big thing for me. Yeah, that's awesome, Charles. One, so how would you say, I mean, obviously now that you, you, you're on more of the tech space and the data analytics side, how would you actually explain for folks out there, like what is data analytics? Like what does that mean to you? Well, to me, I mean, when I try to explain this to people who don't know what I'm doing, I ask them, do you collect data first? Like, do you collect data? And most everybody does collect data, whether it's in a tally book, whether it's in an Excel spreadsheet, which everybody's familiar with. Um, or for companies, I mean, you have your databases. And yeah, you have all these data sets everywhere. Data analytics is really taking all this data, bringing it together, and trying to glean some kind of like meaningful sense of what it all means. Right. So, and within data analytics, and this is something that you, you guys describe here, but can you help describe the difference between like data science, machine learning, and artificial intelligence? Because I think a lot of people, including myself, actually, until Matt explained it to me, like what the actual differences are. Can, can you kind of help clear that up a little bit? Yeah. Like when you look at your data science, you're looking at those three things. And when you get into machine learning, for instance, that's taking your data and not looking at it as a, well, here's what we did. But data science is trying to make predictions based on current data set. When you get into machine learning, that's what we're talking about. When you're looking at uh, AI, for instance, now you're trying to take actionable steps, like make an actionable uh, effort off of those predictions. Interesting. Okay. So how, how does all that tie into drilling fluids? Can you describe that? Because um, in the paper, I think it really bridges that gap real well. So do you, can you share your thoughts on that one? Yeah. So right now, we collect a lot of data. And that really is that first step there. Right. That is your data science. We're collecting the data. We gain insights from all this data. We're able to say, hey, you know, what is our average mud weight in this formation? But Taking it to the next step of machine learning, like you could feed into a model um, examples of what you want that, what, what is good data? Train your model to say, well, here's what the good data looks like. What are the actual data points that helped us arrive at that, that good data? And I think that's an important distinction to make uh, is when you have these huge sets of data, sometimes it's, well, I got away with drilling this well at this mud weight, just taking that example a little further. Versus machine learning being like, you know what, based upon the information I have, your most similar wells are here. And so actually, instead of just the average of everything in the area, here's a number that makes the most sense. So kind of, kind of looking at this huge swath of data and actually making decisions that says, actually, you know, thinning it down and then saying, actually, your number is probably more like this. Um, would you agree, Charles? Yeah, for sure. And if you want like a working example too, taking it to the next step, like the AI side of it is having it take an actionable step. So say we initially we have our data set. That's our data science. We're able to gain insights from it. Um, the next step machine learning is saying, well, here's what the best mud weight would be based on past precedent, past data points. So it's saying, okay, well, here's your prediction for what it should be. And then that AI would be the next step saying, all right, well, let's make that happen. You know, let's, it feeds that same data into other machines within the system and say it feeds Bay right into your system. It's taken an actual step based off of your data points. Gotcha. So how without, without any kind of personal intervention from anybody else, that's the key. Right. 
Well, I think one thing with, with the data analytics side of it is, and this is something that we've really had to overcome, uh, you know, in my experience, like I remember back in the day, I was here when it was still FMI and every single, now we're still very Excel heavy, but even more so back then and uh, describe how important it is, like the quality of data actually going into this, this platform. And in some, some of the, some of the, the challenges that you've seen through that, uh, so, so as we've evolved and, and grown this thing. Yeah, for sure. Now, this was probably one of the two biggest challenges I faced with the entire project. Uh, other one being scope creep. And this one here, and yeah, Matt, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> um, but we'll get to that a little bit later. Um, the data, when you look at this whole entire project, ideally you want to spend probably a good 70, 80% of your efforts, not on the finished, polished product everybody sees, but kind of in the weeds like I was trying to get this data cleaned up. Right. Trying to make this data something that's useful. Because what happens is we have I mean, we have years, decades worth of data here. And that data was collected at different times in the company's development. Sometimes certain types of data were more significant than others. And we have different systems that historically maybe collected a fraction of what we collect now. And then a new system came along, a new way of thinking. So now we added a couple more data points that we felt were significant. Maybe we started collecting bottom hole assembly data. Maybe a few years later, we started collecting um, better offset data as far as like location-based things or formation types. Right. Um, what you have is you have an incomplete data set where you have older wells that might have less data, newer wells that have a lot more data. And from my perspective, I have to find a way to bridge this gap between all this data so that I can present it to the end user as useful data. And you have to decide though, which data can we not rely on or what are the limitations of what we can present to people. So a lot of times we'd have to make that decision internally and say, all right, well, maybe we only have to use three, four years worth of data for, for this one report type. But in another report type, we might have 20 years worth of data. We can use all the data. Right. Yeah. One thing I thought was interesting is just, you know, the evolution of particularly unconventionals where we kick around the conversation a few years ago, customers really wanted uh, information broken down by the curve section and then the lateral section reported separately. And now it's becoming more like, well, it only takes a few hours to drill the curve, not a few days, you know, a couple of days and extra trips. And so do we really, if it's all happening in the same day where I start the lateral and I drill the curve, uh, does it really make sense to try and break that up? when it's such a small cost component relative to what it used to be as far as break down. Um, and I thought that was an interesting one because for a while, you know, we were gathering more data and now it's kind of like we need less um, because it's just less significant. Yeah. And it, there's other elements to it as well. Um, sometimes like, well, you know how we collect our data. It all comes from our engineers in the field and they're all human. And as humans, we're all prone to mistakes. And when you look through our data point or all of our data sets, you have a variety of data points in there that have, have errors in it, human input errors, whether it's misspelling of words, whether it's putting a decimal point in the wrong place. And once you start seeing all this data compiled and aggregated, you're able to real quickly put it on some tables and charts, and you can see the outliers. And some of these outliers were, were big outliers. So the big, big part of this here was going back to our actual account managers and saying, well, A, 
what is the right data point here? <laughs> what should this data, what should this data really be? You'd go to the account managers because they were the most familiar with the wells that probably had the errors. You'd ask them, you have the familiarity of this project, what should it have been? Um, if there was an answer that was definitive, make the correction. Yeah. If there's not, we have to remove that data, that data point. Um, and then the next step was talking to the account managers about how do we correct future errors? How, how do we stop this from happening in the first place? So there were a lot of behavioral changes we had to start instituting. For sure. You, you saw a huge shift in attention to detail um, on certain parts of our data collection processes that in the past didn't have that kind of attention given to them. Right. I think one thing, and, and we're talking about account managers, but one thing that's re- really unique to me uh, through reading the paper uh, is, your, is your brief discussion on the user base. Um, it, it's not for just one person. It's not just for salesmen. It's not just for, you know, account managers. Can you talk a little bit about like, you know, the, the, the users and, and, and how it may apply uh, to different people based on all the deliverables that it, something like this offers? Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, any company has many different types of employees that serve unique roles. And for us, I mean, you have everything from accounting. You have guys who are in the warehouse. You have our engineers in the field. You have account managers. Um, all of them are looking at the data from a different perspective. Um, and some of the data doesn't matter to them. What might matter significantly to an account manager might not really matter at all to somebody in accounting. So for us, being able to design this in a way that kind of puts all these data, access to the data in little buckets, you know, let's clean up the data for an accountant so they don't have to see any of the mud properties, you know, um, for the guys who are in the field, maybe they care more about those mud properties, but overall margins aren't as important to them. Sure. Uh, taking it a step further, we have customer access. Our customers have access to data, but uniquely, they only have access to their data. And this is really important because it goes along with data security. Um, Throughout all of this here, our number one thought was, how do we secure this data? Like within internally, within our own company, how do we make sure that people only have access to what they should have access to? Uh, And externally, how do we ensure that customers can trust that we have their data integrity in mind? A lot of our customers might have no interest in sharing their data with their competitors, which quite logically, I mean, it makes sense. Checks out. (laughs) Um, So a lot of what we did initially was ensure that access rights were properly applied. I mean, down to the most granular level, making sure that data is only going where it should go. Yeah. Whenever you have this much data available immediately, whereas in the past, you had to comb through hundreds, thousands of reports. Now it's all available you know, click of a button, all of a sudden that data becomes a lot more valuable. No, most definitely. And I think, again, that's, I think that's extremely unique because it's, it's everything that we're doing. Um, every person within the organization and even customers want to see something different. And, and I think that's, what's neat about this is it's anyone within the company can, can, can use this to their advantage, the access to data, the deliverables, um, you know, and, and even things, uh, you know, some of the visual features and the actual utility components are, are again, like so powerful. And that's one thing that I'm impressed with uh, is, you know, as an account manager, continuing to do KPI presentations and, you know, just present data is, is figuring out how 
to not just puke data at people, but like organize it and have it graphically appealing to the eye to where you actually are looking at something that is attractive, which it sounds silly, but that actually goes a long way with a lot of people. So can you describe sort of of the considerations and how you really came up with committing to a certain, like how the thing looks if, if uh, for lack of better terms? Yeah, for sure. I'm sure Matt can attest to this. The first version we did of this was atrocious. Hmm. (laughs) Um, It wasn't, I wouldn't say it was atrocious necessarily, but uh, it was visually complicated. Gotcha. And one of the things that I realized as I was putting this together, um, because for the first, for the first three months, my eyes are really the only eyes that were laid upon this. And as you start building the visual elements, um, you get really good at knowing where all your secret little tools and tricks are. Yeah. But once you show it to somebody and you set them down in front of it, it's too complicated. I mean, they won't know how to get around it. And that's what happened the first time we did this year is I had a lot of tricks in there and people couldn't quite recognize the path to go. So what I had to do is I had to take a giant step back and erased every visual I had, just erased them all. And I asked myself, all right, for this one report, what is the overarching idea? What is the point we're trying to drive home on this? Great example would be losses. You know, on a losses page, we don't need to have financial information on that page at all. Right. You know, losses should tell us about well, your different elements of your losses down home. Where do they go? And visually, you only want to have a few elements on that page. The more elements you have on that page, the more distraction there is, the more complicated it becomes. Yeah. Um, Going a step further than that, uh, you have to make it so it's intuitive. If you want somebody to have the ability to go through this report, they have to know that that drop-down box is the only drop-down box that's important. You don't want to put 20 different drop-downs on that page. Right. You really just want to have one or two. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really good point. I mean, beyond, I think there's something to be said about having good, clean user interfaces in as much as people buy into that this is a real finished product, not something that was, you know, whipped up and, and half put together. And then I think with just the, the utility aspect, because I mean, we were, the big thing was how long it was taking us to put together benchmarks for customers. Like that was, that was sort of the, the base inspiration for all this. But what really, uh, I think what really ate us, was also the notion that this is going to have to change the way we work and think. You know, yes, it's going to save you time, but you have to actually use it. Um, and, and part of that was, if you want this information, this is how it's going to look from now on, which, you know, a lot of folks, I think, were, were reasonably flexible and understood it was the direction we needed to go. But um, I think Charles's ability to communicate that simplicity and, you know, say just enough without saying too much in different sections was essential to getting all of our end users to actually use it and to actually say, this is useful and helps me do my job better and save time. That was, a, that was a big challenge initially too, getting, a, getting adoption, getting people to accept it because everybody's coming from an Excel-based world. And now we're jumping into this online-based world where things are completely foreign to everybody. Um, one of the things you noticed, one of the things I noticed was when we started developing this year, um, AES analytics, you have flexibility within every visual. 
where you can jump through the visual for looking at different levels of granularity. You can look at all of your data very broadly. You can look at all the sales totals for all products for a single customer of all time. Or you can jump down and say, I want to see all the, all the sales for just a specific rig for that customer. Right. Or you can go even further in granularity, look just at one well or even one product. And within a visual, you can actually go up and down throughout those hierarchy levels. Well, this is a new idea. It's kind of foreign to everybody that you can see one data set and manipulate it. And for a visual element on a screen, it took some time to get users to accept that as being the new norm instead of just seeing a spreadsheet with all this data laid out in 20 rows and 50 columns. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you're right. Once you learn how to drive, it's, it's not too bad. Um, and then I think, I don't know, taking it a, a step further, I thought it was cool when people were like, well, what if, and, and this is where we get into scope creep, because I think some of the best tools we have in there were from our users. And I mean, Justin in particular, you had a lot of great ideas. You said, hey, can we do this? Once you start using, you say, well, what else can I do? And because they're using it every day, it becomes, this helps me do my job better. But what if we had one more thing since they start to see the possibilities? The challenge, though, of course, is when you have every account manager asking for something slightly different or perhaps, uh, you know, is it, well, did the customer, you know, we want to give the customer whatever they want, but did they, did they really want it or do they just want to see if we can do it? Um, because yeah. Charles is one person. Sure. Um, so maybe maybe you could comment a little bit on 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 how you feel like you were able to narrow down the, the demand and, and stay focused to get us to the product we've got today. Oh yeah. So scope creep. I mean, it's it's talking about when you start a project out, um, a lot of times there's excitement involved. A lot of times there's the unknown and you're learning a lot more about it. And scope creep is when you have an initial objective for a project. And once you get into the project, that objectives starts to get skewed. Maybe it starts going broader. And now instead of it being singularly about key performance indicators, for instance, which is what we initially wanted to do for this project was create an analytics platform for APIs. Um, but then people start recognizing the power in this and they start making requests for additional features. An example, not necessarily an example for this year, but to give you an example would be um, accounting. All of a sudden somebody just wants more accounting things. And now you're taking your singularly focused KPI tool and kind of starting to take your attention off KPIs. And now you're skewing over towards some different features of accounting. And then you start looking at some of your warehouse needs. You start going that direction more. Before you know it, you've kind of lost track of your initial objective. Not only have you lost track of it, but you could potentially be putting it in a worse position than it could be because you're not giving it any attention. You're not developing it to where it should be. Um, and that was a huge challenge for us initially because we were all excited. Everybody was excited. Everybody wanted to have a little piece of this action here because it was making lives a lot easier. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the amount of time it was saving people once they accepted it, I mean, it was, it was significant. And <laughs> so for us, really having a well-defined strategy for where we wanted to go was really important. And constantly having to redirect ourselves back to that is a challenge that I face even to this day. Um, but it's a good challenge. Yeah, no, that's, it's, it, it's certainly in, in, in the thing that's impressive is the, the amount of time from like conceptually, which I think 
we've all been looking for something, but once, once really the rubber hit the road and you guys started working on this, the turnaround was, was rather impressive from, from like a time component. Cause I would imagine, I, I'm sure as big organizations try to implement this kind of stuff, it could take years, but I mean, it, it really hasn't taken that long, which is super impressive. But one thing I, I, I wanted to highlight kind of switch gears is um, the, the ability to actually help the, the platform's ability to help us as account managers actually plan uh, and optimize what we're doing. Cause that's, I think one thing it's cool to have a bunch of data and, and a KPI and say, Oh, like for 150 wells in this County, our cost per foot is X, but to the, for us to be able to look at a map, to be able to analyze what's going on around there to help us figure out, you know, what, what risks are involved with drilling this type of formation I mean, that's where I think a lot of value is added. Can you touch a little bit about how an analytics platform can help optimize for well planning? Yeah, sure. So when we look at our data sets, it's coming from a rig file, right? Data we collect in the field, amongst other places. And there are literally thousands of data points that we're pulling in. And for us humans, we're good at of really quickly identifying outliers as one of humans' uh, better traits. But when it comes to aggregating all data and trying to glean from all this data here what the driving factors are, we're not really as good at it as a machine can be. Right. Um, and so one of the things that we can do is we can take this data and we can get rid of a lot of the uh, Part of that there can happen through uh, well, machine learning. You take a data set, that you're going to train your model to so that it can identify for you what are the actual driving factors for getting to the end result you want. And it'll remove all the additional data that's not necessary to you. An example from, our, from all of our wells, we collect 30, 40 different property values. Well, not all that's going to be significant if we're trying to identify what's causing a specific issue downhole. Only certain right. properties will. And this could, with data analytics, you can quickly get rid of all that data you don't need. Hmm. No, that's, yeah, it's, it's, again, it's, it's neat because it continues to evolve. And, and the one thing that is neat about it is you could be in, in a customer's office or like, again, this is a standard case for me. Customer was asking a question and it was something Normally, like, hey, all right, let me go back to the office. Let me take some, you know, let me look around, dig some, dig up some data and send something back. Well, as the meeting's going on, you know, we're conversing and I'll quickly pull out my phone and pull up some information and it, and it helped them uh, basically make a decision on the spot without having me go back to the office and look at, you know, how much product being used, blah, 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 blah. But the quick access to information, even from the cell phone to be able to plan and strategize real time is, is something that, that for me has been something extremely valuable. And the customer was, was very appreciative of, of me not like them not having to wait on me and just being able to just, you know, quickly make decisions and, and plan. And, and so again, it's, it's, those are the, I think again, where a lot of the beef is right there is just quick access to information and ability to make decisions on the fly. It's, um, I never really thought something like that would ever come up, you know, actually be in, developed. And so uh, it's pretty eye-opening to, to see what it's capable of. 
And, and in my opinion, I think we're at the tip of an iceberg here. So my, I'm curious to hear your thoughts. Like if you had a crystal ball, like what does this thing look like or just data analytics on the drilling fluid side look like say in five to 10 years? I mean, do you have any kind of thoughts or like, you know, a vision that you, you might have for all this? I mean, yeah, I can see how far, how far off do we want to go here? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, we talk about it. So when you think about it, I mean, I think we're in its infancy right now, right now we're trying to make sure we understand how to best collect data so that we can inform better decisions in the future. Um, Down the road. I mean, once we have all the data points we want to collect predictive modeling, where you're actually able to predict with relative certainty, what can happen within a three mile radius of any point on the map based on all of our previous data before you even set foot on that, that soil out there. I mean, that's something that could be happening. You know, I mean, you take it a step beyond that there. I mean, you could have, you could have automated rigs running themselves if you have enough yeah. time. Right. Well, that's, you know? that's a, that's a big word right now is automation and, and really trying to eliminate people at the rig site. Now, I don't know if you could ever eliminate a mud engineer, but, but, but certainly the stars are starting to slowly shift and align in such that you could see how that might be possible, whether it happens in our lifetime, who knows. But, but the capabilities, I think now that Pandora's box is slowly opening, um, the possibilities are endless. And, and, and it's such a neat, it's so neat for even myself to see us going from a, a manual entry company to now seeing automation um and and you know things like what we're doing it's it's certainly it's an interesting exciting journey and like i said i think we're just getting started so it's yeah i I was just gonna add you know so i work for a much bigger company and and i dealt with a lot of software teams and that sort of thing and um i was i was frustrated at how slow things went and competing budgets and competing interests and trying to impress different people and it sort of kept people out of focus on deliverables um and working at aes everything is different it happens so much faster uh there's no you know you don't get the internal resistance and competing interests and that sort of thing and and it's one thing i love but it's phenomenal um I just think even with all of those kinds of barriers out of the way, how fast Charles in particular and the, and the folks he was working with um, were able to get to where they got. And now, um, you know, as you point out, Justin, really start thinking about the future of, wow, if I could do this, like, you know, let's, let's go big. Right. No, it's, it's, it's exciting. And, and you know, it's funny because I know internally, you know, we're, crazy as it sounds like we're actually growing uh, our teams uh, in different departments in, in certain ways. And, and it's funny because most people like, Oh, you know, like data analytics is taking jobs away. It's actually creating jobs, you know? And so that's, what's cool about it too, is, is I don't think people out there realize that like, we're going to need people, you know, like Charles who understand mud, who understand data, bridge the gap. Um, and so like, for me, I embrace it now, obviously, you know, some sort of, data analytics and machine learning and automation sometimes scares people, but, but I think people kind of need to kind of shift their perspective on it because it's actually creating a lot of opportunity for people that otherwise may not even get into the oil field. And so I think in general, I think the oil field's shifting and um, 
it's just, you know, innovation is, has been bred due to all this chaos and we're trying to do more for less. And, and uh, I think, you know, that's exactly what you know, all this is talking about. Um, with regards to the paper, Charles, I mean, in conclusion, uh, can you kind of help sort of tie it all up and, and, and can, you know, give the listeners a little bit of, um, well, we've already kind of talked about the future, but, but I guess, yeah, what, what to, to conclude, man, what, what would you say um, is the key takeaways for you from writing this paper? I mean, honestly, my biggest takeaway is we're all seeking to become more efficient any way we can. I mean, that's really the name of the game for ourselves, for our customers. Everybody wants to do more with less and you're not going to get there unless you're optimizing your data collection and analysis strategies. You just, you're not going to get there. Right. Um, and that's what we're trying to do here. And that's what I think we're succeeding at doing is we're becoming more efficient. Excellent. And efficiency and time is money, especially in our industry. So uh, Matt, what are your thoughts, man? Any, any closing thoughts or last words? No, I mean, it's kind of funny. I'm, I'm scrolling through the paper in front of me and, and I think it's just kind of reflecting on, I mean, I learned a lot through doing some of the offset research and everything. And um, it's been really fun working with Charles, but like, it, it's like, wow, we've come a long way, but I bet we'll, I hope we can say the same thing in another year when we keep digging at this and, and growing in sophistication. Um, and so I, I think it's just, it, it's, I don't see it as optional. I don't think anybody in our company does where they say, oh, we could just keep doing it our old way. I think <laughs> it's almost like a sense of survival. Like I can't, I can't take advantage of these tools fast enough. Yeah. Um, and, and if I let up with the success that we've made so far and say that we accomplished something, um, then I think we'd be making a grave mistake. Uh, and so, I, I, I mean, you know, this stuff's going to continue to evolve. As, as Charles said, we're scratching the surface. Um, but to see what's been accomplished and then think we could go so much deeper, just, I mean, it's, it's inspiring. I've got things to do for the foreseeable future, you know? <laughs> Yeah, um, there, there's Charles has plenty to do for the foreseeable future. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, and I think all the emails he gets from me asking certain questions and trying to pick out the bugs. I'm sure he's probably, pro I probably have a tab started with him by now. So, um, <laughs> but, but I applaud you guys. You, you guys have done a fantastic job. You've certainly made my life easier uh, on a number of different levels. And so, um, yeah, I just, uh, I'm excited to see it. Uh, the paper has been a great read. Um, either Matt or Charles, uh, how can people access the paper now that we're not doing the actual presentation? So if you go to AADE.org, and they, I don't know the exact date of publication, but hopefully by the time this podcast is released, um, if you go under technical papers, it's broken up by conference, which I really wish they wouldn't do. But um, if you go to the Fluids Conference and look at 2020, um, the paper will be, be there, PDF, you download it for free. Um, so that's, that's definitely the way to go to get it. Um, but uh, yeah, that's one thing I love about the AD. All, all our papers are there from any, any time we publish something with them and anyone can look at it whenever they want. Awesome. Well, uh, Charles, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on to the show. Um, if people are more interested to uh, learn more about Charles himself, I'm sure you can find him on LinkedIn. Uh, you can also find uh, Matt and myself on LinkedIn. Uh, or you can hit us up at the full line podcast at aesfluids.com if you have any questions or um, if you're someone out there who's used the platform, we certainly, any feedback we can get is always appreciated. Uh, this is a dynamic tool. It continues to grow. 
Um, but all in all, I think it's just making our industry more exciting. And so, uh, again, thank you guys so much. Please subscribe. And uh, if, you could, if you haven't yet, leave a review. I know how many listeners have listened to this and we don't have nearly that many reviews. So if you're out there, leave a review, please. It Validate us, please. <laughs> no, but the engagement from everyone has been great. Um, and with that being said, everyone out there, thank you so much. Have a wonderful day. Take care. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Please tune in next week for another exciting episode of The Flow Line. And remember, may your returns always be full and your trips always smooth. Views expressed in this program belong to participants and not their employees. The program is for informational purposes only and cannot take the place of seeking professional advice. Copyright AES Drilling Fluids.